Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, you're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I bring back one of my favourites, Dr. Cliff Harvey, researcher, naturopath, PhD, and all-around awesome dude, and we talk about some of the common myths in the nutrition space that are floating around right now, like, do we need to avoid coffee first thing because it's going to tank our energy later on? Should women avoid doing cold water immersion? Is green tea going to be toxic for our liver? And a ton more, actually. We discuss what Cliff is doing right now with his supplements and his nutrition. And all around, this is just a great conversation that brings a lot of practical tips along with it for you, the listener. So you can just get a handle of what the lay of the land is right now. For those of you unfamiliar with Cliff, he is New Zealand's expert on the effects of a ketogenic diet in a healthy population, but he is so much more than that. Dr. Cliff Harvey has been helping people to live healthier, happier lives and to perform better since starting in clinical practice way back in the late 1990s. Over this time, he has been privileged to work with many Olympic professional Commonwealth and other high-performing athletes. He has also worked with many people to overcome the effects of chronic and debilitating health conditions. Along the way, he has founded or co-founded many successful businesses in the health, nutrition and wellness space, including the Nutrition Store Online and Holistic Performance Institute, New Zealand's leading certification and diploma for health, nutrition, health coaching and performance that has many of the world experts teaching on the course. So students are learning from the best. Cliff has over 20 years experience as a strength and nutrition coach and in addition to his PhD research, he's a registered clinical nutritionist, qualified naturopath and holds a diploma in fitness training in health coaching and patient care. You can find Cliff over at www.cliffharvey.com or over on the Holistic Performance Institute website, which is pretty much holisticperformanceinstitute.com. And you can also find him on Instagram at CliffyDog. He's not as active on Instagram, i got to say. You'll definitely find him on Holistic Performance Institute, though. So just a reminder before we crack on into the interview that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. This increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst literally thousands of podcasts that anyone could listen to. So that way, more people get the opportunity to learn from guests like Cliff that I have on the show. All right, team, please enjoy this episode with Dr. Cliff Harvey. And uh, it's my favorite thing anyway. We should just have, we should just record all the time. I know, I know. Have those little road mics on. Um, yeah, we should yeah. have done that at the HBI uh catch up the other week that would have been interesting we had some good conversations there too, too much opportunity for cancellation oh. i reckon <laughs> actually right you're quite right about that i did say some things which could have raised eyebrows to be fair um cliff how are things going with you pretty good mickey uh, very busy but that's that's good it's good busy at the moment i feel like i'm 
I'm learning things and I like learning things. Yes, I, I 100% appreciate that. And do you know, I used to, I used to rally against the, the use of the word busy for myself. I would never like to say yeah. I'm busy because it almost has this sort of self-important. I used to, I, I had it in my head that it was, I'm making myself to seem too important compared to everyone else. But I, I, I'm busy too, actually. And I've been saying it a lot, but like you, it's fun busy, which is always, always good stuff. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're right though. I think people do default too much to that idea that busy is good and busy means productivity and all that kind of stuff or, or busy is some kind of sort of virtue signal for people where we should feel sorry for them <laughs> yeah, i know oh it's like um early morning like if you're an early morning person we should all strive to be this way because there's a lot of virtue signaling with that as well i of course i'm all right on that respect i'm definitely an early morning person but you often see that that's sort of the, the more favored uh productive being in society yeah and I think that speaks to the absolutism, which we'll probably delve into a little bit today. You know, people sort of see one way as being the way, but it could just be a way to, you know, cre create a better environment for your day, for example. Yeah. If you wake up at 4.30 in the morning and you go out for your run and you make your bed and all that kind of stuff, that's all awesome. Those could be linchpin actions for you, but they might not be for another person. 100%. So I, I think it's more about the context, right? It's looking at, well... That's really cool because that's an example of a linchpin action that works for that person. What kind of linchpin action would, would work well for me to live healthier and happier? And it might not be that thing. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the making the bed thing, I know a lot of people get on board with that and it makes sense. Yeah. But for me, I don't care. Like if, if I don't make my bed, it's got no consequence whatsoever to my yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. And I wonder whether that was a uh, Tim Ferriss thing, actually, because I remember, and, and not necessarily a Tim Ferriss thing, who who maybe, I remember listening to Tim Ferriss back in 2013, him talking about making the bed as a, the first thing you do. And I remember my head, in my head, I'm like, damn, Tim, you were right. And I do that every morning and I, ah, I am awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, and because it works, right? Yeah. If it works for you. Yeah. I, and I think it, it Tim got that, I'm pretty sure, from some influential military people, you know, people who had left the military and were, um, you know, pretty influ influential in that space. Not Jocko Willink per se, but I think there was another, I can't remember his name now, but there was an admiral who gave some um, some talks on it. He might have even done a TED talk or a TEDx on it. Oh, nice. But yeah, I can't remember exactly, but yeah, that's where it's... Because obviously Jocko Willink's famous for his, you know, getting up at 4.30 and that's one of his, his I know. sort of linchpin actions. Yeah, I love it. I love seeing his little Twitter feed and seeing his 4.32 and then everyone else like putting their little, and I've actually done that before as well. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. tweeted to, to, to Jocko and, oh look, oh, look, 4.32. Tell you what I've been doing of late, which has been phenomenally successful for my appetite, for my energy, um, and the ability to sort of work undistracted in the morning. So I'm, I've always been, you know that I'm, I'm a big protein person, and particularly in the last couple of years, I've really bumped that up and have ensured that I get a certain amount in the morning, because that's what works for me. And But what I have done recently is switch my breakfast. So instead of trying to make up protein with little bits of protein bar, which I still include sometimes. I actually just had a little bit just before as part of my breakfast, but, um, and protein cereal and, and whatnot. I've started just to have um, chicken alongside my smoothie, uh, like air fried chicken. And it's about 130 grams I have in addition to my smoothie. And 
and with the collagen that I also include, I'm getting about 60 grams of protein. And I have to say, it makes a big difference to how I feel in the morning. Like I'm really like, cause I'm pretty impervious actually when it comes to supplement changes, um, uh, switches and, and other things, which I know other people feel different when they do things differently, but I generally don't. But the things which mm. make me feel great are now I've, I've recognized is actually getting the animal protein in the morning and of course training in the morning really helps for me that's interesting well i mean it's it's a it's one of the big things right mm. and so i think we can we can often wonder whether the supplements we're taking or small things we're doing are giving us that much benefit because they're not so apparent but you know if we start talking about an extra hour of sleep or extra two hours of sleep or an extra 30 grams of protein or something like that it's it's pretty big shifts physiologically you know yeah totally and that, it reminds me of what uh you know daz used to say this years and years ago why why do we see breakfast just as breakfast i'm paraphrasing he didn't use those terms yeah. but he was sort of saying well why couldn't breakfast be a steak or why couldn't breakfast be some chicken or yeah whatever yeah i don't really like having that stuff for breakfast so yeah I don't, but I completely get it. Do you know, and I didn't think I did either, actually. And it was only when I started well, I, doing it. I don't it. mind a steak for breakfast. That's that's good. No, I appreciate. And I just, I think I just um, thought I'd just, I think I did it by accident one day and went, whoa, that's, that's made a huge difference to how I feel. And then I just have rolled with ever since. And the only unfortunate part of this is that I do enjoy the protein cereals like the Catalina Crunch and the Perfect Keto cereal and stuff. They're <laughs> delicious, but actually it does, despite the fact that it's still got protein in it and contributes, and it's not that different actually in terms of the amount of protein, like the amount of protein I'm having isn't that different. Um, but just, I just think it's that additional, um, I don't know, something about that um, animal protein just really does it for me. I wonder, I'm wondering how you accidentally ate a chicken breast. Like, did you, did you stumble <laughs> and fall and... <laughs> no. your mouth or yeah, that's a good question actually i'm not quite <laughs> sure how i accidentally stumbled i think it, i think i didn't have anything else at the time i think i'm like what else right. am i gonna have oh i might try this and i'm like well, shoot that's delicious actually i can do that um interesting though cliff so at the minute i'm doing a a series of workshops in around the anatomy of fat loss right and i'm talking about protein in, in one of my workshops cool. and this is something which I find this is this is a tangent a little bit, but um, I'm talking about the importance of protein um, with respect to fat loss, obviously. And and someone who's in the who was in the webinar asked the question. She said, "Look, my colleagues are really worried about protein from an mTOR perspective and a cancer causing perspective, and the damage it can have on kidneys." And the, the and and look, I think you and I are probably over the science enough to know that these are not concerns of people who actually study in protein metabolism and have looked at the literature there are there are meta-analyses done on kidney function um mTOR signaling being dysregulated is largely due to insulin and not protein it's tissue specific these you know these are the things which I understand from that health perspective but what surprised me was she's a doctor and her colleagues who are doctors are still thinking like this like why aren't other people on top of the literature i think it's because it's the literature that you're exposed to and unless you're basically conducting you know systematic or or at least sort of scoping reviews fairly regularly of the research you're not necessarily going to be across it right 
you know, you certainly will be in your particular area, mm-hmm. but I, I do think that there is a bit of a lingering, there's sort of a lingering mindset within medicine that higher protein could be dangerous and that's enough to sort of suggest caution for, for clients, for patients. Um, but as you said, it's not really evidence-based because there's there's been enough now. You know, we would say that, sure, in the presence of pre-existing kidney disease, there should be some caution. Uh, we need to weigh that up against other long-term health outcomes and short-term quality of life. So there's still some gray area there because I still don't agree even in, in the situation where we have pre-existing kidney disease that necessarily should be a very low protein intake but it should obviously be lower. Mm. Um, similarly for like Parkinson's disease, right? We don't want to have high levels of protein co-ingestion with L-DOPA medication. But that doesn't mean either that we should have a really low protein diet because we know now, because there's enough research on it, that that's going to negatively affect someone's quality of life and probably long-term outcomes. So there's a lot to it, but I, I think you're right. I mean, the that ship has sailed. There's, there's plenty of research showing that a higher protein intake is not an issue. Um, especially with regard to the kidneys. And I, I think once people start talking mTOR, I kind of fade out a little bit. Mm. Not that it's not important, just because I think that we really start to ignore bigger impact research that has functional translation to what we're doing, how we're living, how we're performing for really fine aspects of you know, mechanisms. We're, we're really going down the rabbit hole of biological reductionism. And at the end of the day, what we're really relying on in that instance is, is rodent research. And, you know, as we've discussed many times, it's very difficult. For some things, it's wicked, right? For some things, we need that animal research because it backs up what we know. It, it helps us to provide um, better models of plausibility better explanations for, for the mechanism that's hap- happening. But in some instances, it's not very translatable because different animals are very different in terms of their physiology. And especially when we're looking at mice and comparing that to humans, there are some really important differences metabolically. And so while for some things they're cool and they also provide really interesting initial models, we always need to look, obviously, at what's been shown in, in humans. Yeah. And that's where things become a lot different because humans have a a very good capacity for assimilating and utilizing protein in in a very efficient way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I just, that that mTOR IGF-1 story, like it's, I've heard a few people, so so, um, a year ago, actually, I wrote a blog on it and I thought I'd published it and I, I hadn't, I haven't as yet, but I remember I listened to both Lane Norton on Peter Atea and Don Lehman on Peter Atea, like both, particularly Don, like he is, he's like, he's one of the world expert in protein metabolism and they gave such clear explanations as to how the mTOR research is misconstrued and I just, like, I feel like that should be 101 now for people who are out there sort of client-facing or patient-facing, and, and particularly because when you remove, when if you're told protein is harmful and you shouldn't be eating it, then it's always opportunity cost for the person, for the, you know, N equals one. So take protein out, what are we going to eat? Yeah. We can't be fat, and- can it? Because, hello, fat's still considered you know not great so it's all just the six grains a day six plus serves a grains a day yeah exactly and i i think you know most 
people who are involved in either sports performance or maybe, you know, body composition outcomes or, or health. Typically, you know, I'm just sort of thinking of the people I know, almost all of them to a person would prioritize protein in terms of their macronutrient distribution, right? When they're providing for clients. So it's protein first. And then most of them are pretty pragmatic. They're kind of like, well, it probably doesn't matter that much. That The rest doesn't matter that much. 100%. You know, whether you get more of your calories from fat or carbohydrate, whatever, it doesn't matter too much. Of course, there's a big range as well within those sort of supposedly optimal protein intakes. But what we're really talking about here is this tendency to drift under maybe 1.2 yeah. Grams per kilo body weight per day or getting close to 0.8, which is obviously still the RDA. And I think anyone who's read the research would know that that's just not adequate. Yeah. No, I know. And I think that's that's where the problem lies, right? Because if I'm thinking about um, doctors who are out there, and this is no disrespect to, it's not, you know, every doctor is different, but I, I definitely know of clients who have doctors who still are in the camp of that um you know red meat will kill you um lower stop, don't eat more than three eggs a week like honestly things like this and this isn't these aren't doctors who've been there who are necessarily you know our age or older either these are sort of like younger doctors as well which it surprises me somewhat and this is it's a really important avenue because I think we need to be really careful about the messaging we're putting out and being more discerning about differentiating between the big impact stuff and the the very small things. Yes. Because, you know, I'm not 100% convinced by the, even though I'm in that sort of space, I'm not 100% convinced by the low-carb idea or the idea that's very prominent within low carb that saturated fat is completely innocuous and you can just eat as much as you want Mm -hmm. however i do think based on the evidence that it's certainly not a nutrient of concern because it's not it's not the priority you know and and so if we're taking care of the priorities in other words hey make sure you're prioritizing protein vegetables eating mostly unrefined foods, you know, avoiding where you can the ultra processed foods, but they're okay as treats as well. You know, so basically we're talking about a a context and a framework of an overall healthy diet, which most of us would agree on, then it becomes a a very limited concern. So we don't really need to worry about it because we don't want to distract people. We don't want to confuse them. And that's even more, more apparent when we start talking about things that cause minor alterations in IGF-1 or mTOR you know, or you should reduce your sodium from 3,500 milligrams to less than 3,000 milligrams. I mean, really? Yeah. We're talking about very, very minor things here. Which are very difficult to measure as well, right? Very difficult to measure. And, you know, what we're starting to see now is a lot of the, the, the negative effect that we see, which might have a very, very, very small overall effect in terms of a you know, on a population scale, you know, we're talking about odds or risk ratios of sort of 10% over, over norm, you know, sort of, so we're talking about sort of 1.1 kind of thing. Is that really meaningful on a personal level? Probably not. But what we can see if we dig deeper is that, yes, some people are probably going to be much more affected by a high sodium intake. And there, there would be genetic underpinnings to that. 
just as some people might not respond well to a very high protein diet, they're going to be out there, just like there are going to be genetic proclivities towards a lot of other things, which we'll probably talk about today, right? Yeah, yeah. But a lot of it does come down to really pulling out fairly extreme effects from a very, very tiny subset of the population. Then that gets extrapolated across a population. And for, for most of us, it's not really an issue if we're taking care of the big stuff. Yeah. And and I was listening to something the other day and they were talking about how, and it's so true as well, is that often we work on um, means, you know, mean intakes, mean sort of values for data and nutrition, but we are not just a population mean. Like that's that's the thing. Like there is, you know, it's that's only sort of, you know, it's a guide, but you have to make those individual sort of decisions. Exactly. And that's where, again, we can get, we can almost get fooled into thinking that because something is best practice, and we're talking about best practice as far as what the evidence actually tells us, not always what the position stands tell us of various organizations, but what the evidence tells us there is best practice. And we should use that as a guide, but we should also deviate from it immediately for the individual. Yeah, 100%. So if, if we're working with clients, yeah. you know, we know that the person's not going to be this this mean because there is there's actually no one that is the mean. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a really good example is with my Monday's matter plan, right? So it's a it's because I have to give guidelines as to things around say exercise, like on average, most people benefit from having something before exercise in the morning when they're in a calorie deficit because they're actually they're already sort of in the space of having less calories than what they need to support their current body weight because you need to have a calorie deficit to lose weight. So they get a little bit more from their workout when they have something beforehand because it will help improve their metabolic output for the session. They'll feel better and it will likely have or potentially have implications for how they feel later in the day as well. But so that is my general guideline, and I'm quite clear on that. But there are definitely people where it actually doesn't make that much of a difference to them, and they prefer to go and fasted. This is women of reproductive age as well, you know, like, you know, these are women who are potentially um, where you always hear that women shouldn't train fasted, but actually some women are fine training fasted. You know, it doesn't impact on biofeedback markers, which are very easy to sort of pinpoint, like their sleep. It doesn't impact negatively on their hormones. It doesn't impact negatively on their energy or cravings. So actually being across those markers for yourself gives you some indication as to what you know how you or how you should go into that session but you know as a person putting together a plan for several hundred people I have to sort of start with a guideline and then you know chat to people and get a bit nuanced when I'm on that individual level yeah absolutely mm. so um we thought we might talk a little bit about myth busting today because last time you were on the show, Cliff, we talked about sort of, well, we started off with trends and then I think we just went on tangents, which is which is why I really love doing these podcasts with you. Um, but I did, I was very interested and very pleased when I saw your, um, saw your piece on caffeine. 
and caffeine in the morning because I had heard on several occasions Huberman say that we shouldn't have caffeine in the morning because it's going to create an energy crash later in the day. Not only Huberman, but then of course everyone else on my social media feed started putting up posts about when you should or shouldn't have caffeine in the morning. And I tried to do a dive in the literature. I tried to figure out why he was saying this and I could not find it. And then you did a good old, um, maybe not position stand article is what I'd call it, on caffeine. So can you give us a rundown on what the scope, what, how you interpret the data? Yeah, so I'd seen a lot of those posts as well. And, you know, having a, a general understanding of that area of the literature, it it didn't seem to make sense in terms of an absolute. You know, and this is the problem is that if we if we say to people that you shouldn't have a coffee first thing in the morning, you shouldn't have a coffee before breakfast, or, you know, you should never have a coffee until X amount of time or whatever, there needs to be pretty strong evidence, I think, to support those types of absolute claims, because no one is saying that everybody should have a cup of coffee first thing in the morning. It, it It's going to depend on the individual. So anyway... I like to take an inductive approach to these things. So instead of having a pre-confirmed bias and going out and finding research for it, I like to think, well, I'm going to try and as much as possible leave my biases at the door, go to the research and just do a systematic search and try and find all of the relevant research that speaks to that particular topic. So what I really focus down on is, you know, the cortisol effect of, of coffee in the morning and the effect on, on lead on sort of uh, catecholamine stress hormones. And because that's often what people are talking about. Yeah. You know, you have a coffee first thing in the morning, it's going to spike your cortisol. That's going to lead to all these later effects in the day. And here's the thing. I think it's very easy to, to misread or, or underread research. Yeah. Because if you start to do a quick look you might easily draw the conclusion that, yep, if you have a coffee in the morning, it's likely to, you know, spike your cortisol levels that could well have some issues down the track. But if we start to read a little bit deeper and we start to read more widely, we'll see things like, well, that's typically shown with pretty high doses. As you know, most of the research on caffeine or a lot of it is done in the performance realm. Yeah. And a lot of the research on caffeine uses fairly standardized doses. Mostly it's the six milligrams per kilo dose. Okay, I'm a 90 kilo dude, right? 54, 540 milligrams then? Yeah. Yeah. So put that into context for people. That's around five espressos. <laughs> I'm not going to wake up and have five espressos. But what we see pretty consistently in the research is that, yes, if you're having those those fairly common studied doses, you will have a big cortisol release and yeah, that might yeah. potentially cause some effects down the down the track yeah however we, we start to see equivocal results under that dose and especially so when we're starting to look at sort of three milligrams per kilo or less yeah there, there may be an effect in some studies but in others there's none and in the majority of studies we're not really seeing much at all so again for for me at 90 kilos um that's 270 yeah. milligrams it's still a pretty big dose it's nearly three cups of coffee so if you're the average person getting up and having a coffee in the morning or even two coffees, you know, it's not likely that there's going to be an excessive or meaningful cortisol spike. Yeah. 
yes, it will wake you up. But people have got to remember as well that they've got the to wake up are, anyway. I'm just kidding. You got to wake up anyway. <laughs> and there is going to be some natural, you know, increase in cortisol in the morning. And for some people, that's a bit underactive. Now, why might that be underactive? Well, um, it could be, could be a number of things. It could be fatigue. It could be all sorts of stuff. But one interesting aspect that came out of that as well is there was research looking at people who were sleep deprived. And in those people who were really sleep deprived, they actually had fairly aberrant cortisol responses in the morning anyway. So their cortisol levels were spiking, right? Interestingly, those who were taking caffeine in the morning didn't have those same types of spikes. They had a more normal cortisol response, which actually makes sense. Because when we think about the actions of caffeine, we can't just think, well, caffeine causes a big release of stress hormones and that's how it stimulates us. It's a little bit more nuanced because initially what caffeine's doing, obviously, is it's a um, adenosine antagonist. So it's basically blocking that neurotransmitter within the brain that is associated with sort of sleepiness and the sleep induction cycle, all that kind of stuff, or relaxation. So it's, it's having some primary effects through that mechanism. Now, generally, it leads on to also, you know, co-release of cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, those stress hormones. But that may not always be the case if it's already achieved some of the stimulatory effect in a sleep-deprived state. So there is some mitigation there. So anyway, the, the short end of the long story is that really it doesn't, it doesn't matter, again, on a sort of population scale. Yes. If, if we're looking at what people generally do, which is to you know get up, have a cup of coffee or two, get into their day, that's fine. But obviously I always want to spin this in terms of any information I put out, how is that relevant to you? you know, as the individual. If you're finding that having a coffee in the morning is stopping you from eating, maybe you're not so hungry and you don't have breakfast, but otherwise you would. Maybe that's not a good thing because you might be someone who benefits from having breakfast. If it's affecting how much you eat at lunch and you tend tend to be under fueling, that could also be an issue. You know, if you're a very high caffeine responder and it's affecting your sleep, or if it's creating anxiety or nervousness or any of those things, then obviously you're using those semi-quantitative come qualitative measures of yourself to tell you that maybe you shouldn't have as much coffee or maybe you should wait a little bit or not have coffee at all. Yes. Yeah. And right. Yeah. So what we're, what we're really breaking down is this absolutist idea that you should not have this. It's like, well, it depends. And it's, it's making people scared of something that is on balance a healthy thing. And I agree. Cheers. <laughs> well, first, I've got a number of points. So the first one is I'm really interested in how you approach the literature because I typically have a question. I want to back up my bias and then I just go cherry picking. So I'm super interested to hear that you do the opposite. <laughs> I, don't, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know if you actually do that. <laughs> no, no. But I did think that, that that was quite funny. Um, but also I think that too often we like to um, – Give, it's almost like what we were discussing with the doctors. Like doctors are a voice of authority and we sort of give over our own personal uh, responsibility maybe. I don't know if that's quite the word. Um, to doctors because they know best. This is what's happened with Huberman. You know, like I remember listening to Andrew Huberman for the first time. I came across him on a Rich Roll podcast. Maybe this this was before the Huberman podcast, obviously. Um, he was the first, it was before he was on Joe Rogan too, I think. And, or maybe it was just after Joe Rogan, but 
Um, and he was a neuros, he, you know, he was just a neuroscientist, not just, but you know, like he sort of dealt in the areas with, with which he had spent his career in. And now he's just reached this guru status where he speaks on any number of topics. And I'm not saying he doesn't have a really good, deep understanding of, um, uh, science literature and, and methodologies and, and how to read studies, but it just, there are just some things that are almost taken as um, as taken at face value in the literature without a really deep understanding of the field. Because I think it's almost like it's almost dismissing all of the experts in the field who may come to a different conclusion than what he comes to. And and if I just sort of continue, it reminded me actually of earlier this year when it, that study headline came out about erythritol and that erythrit and of course the headline read erythritol increases risk of vascular dysfunction and stroke or something like that. Whereas of course when you looked at yeah. the study it was our own endogenous erythritol levels which in a large part are influenced by the amount of sugar we consume. So it wasn't the they didn't even mean they didn't even measure erythritol intake. However after that headline came out, I saw a number of people who are really smart people who then just um, who announced to their following that they were absolutely not going to have erythritol anymore in their diet because of this finding and, and didn't even really backtrack after they did a deeper dive and, and, and could actually read the study itself. Like, I don't know, it's like some people just like to climb up on a hill and die on it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's easy to do, right? You you take a position and then the tendency is psychologically for people to defend that position. Yes. Even when they know they're wrong. Yes. Right, they, they're going to have that implicit tendency to defend it. But I, I think one of the reasons that occurs is it's it's kind of twofold that, well, it's probably threefold actually, that studies are not always easy to read. You know, and I'd like to think that I'm, relatively intelligent but I still struggle with a lot of the studies that I read and I need to go back and read them a couple of times and and really figure out what they're saying you know how they're saying it then there is the presentation of the research and I think this is one of the challenges of the modern era is that it's very important for scientists to get some visibility in the mainstream and so you you can see it, right? A study comes out, and I know a lot of these studies that come out because, as you know, I perform living reviews. So I get these alerts. I know the following day or even the same day, there's going to be PR releases. Yes. And I start to see articles coming out. And there might be 10 or 15 articles in pretty big distribution outlets trumpeting the headline of the study. But the headline often miss really misconstrues what's actually been found. So we've got that issue there. Um, and I've completely forgotten what the third <laughs> issue was. <laughs> right. No, the, the third issue actually is that sometimes, I, I almost hate to say this, but sometimes we do have scientists, and some of them are pretty well known for it, who have a particular agenda and publish voluminously around that agenda but they do so in a way that is is quite difficult for the layperson to read. So again, it goes back to that first problem of the study being hard to read. Yeah. Good example of that is the um, the team of um, Gary Hulse and Albert Reese, yeah, who publish a huge number of studies on the dangers of 
cannabis. Ah, yes. Okay, okay. And their, their work has been very comprehensively rebutted by a number of, you know, great scientists in that area. Um, but they continue to get headlines. You know, the, particularly that one that came out, I think, earlier this year, it might have been end of last year, which showed, I, I'm using quotation marks yeah. for anyone who's listening, that um, cannabis was causally associated with more cancers than tobacco. Hmm. So using cannabis was associated with more cancers than um, smoking tobacco, which is, you know, in contrast to every shred of evidence we have. Mm. If you start looking into the study, it was very peculiar. Um, the methodology was weird. The analytical techniques were somewhat peculiar. Yeah. The data sets were probably misapplied. But it took quite a lot of reading to really figure that out. Yeah. Um, and there's also then there's, there are things that people need to understand about the stuff, right? When you're reading a study, they just published another, another one the other day, which came up in my feed. So that's this is why I'm sort of it's top of mind. This is on my mind. Mm. Uh, recently published another study suggesting that cannabis use is causally associated with pancreatic cancer. Very strong claim because to look at observational data and suggest causality, you need to have very very strong evidence. Anyway, here's just one problem with that, which sort of gives people an indi indication of you need to look at the nuances sometimes or the complexities of what's going on. There was basically a, a fairly big uptick, which is now plateaued or declining in cannabis use around 2010 in most states in the US, probably because they were starting to legalize or decriminalize. You also saw at the, exactly the same time a fairly sharp uptick in pancreatic cancer rates, right? So there is, according to their research, a, a very, very strong association like if you're just looking at um, correlation coefficients, it's really strong. It basically tracks. Now, as a scientist, you're looking at that and saying, well, that doesn't make sense because cancer development takes a long time. So we wouldn't expect for if rates of usage start to go up of one thing that immediately we see the same trajectory of increase in a disease outcome, which should actually take many years to see the increase. So it, it doesn't make sense temporally. Now, but most people aren't necessarily going to look at that. They're going to see the graphs, which match up. They're going to see words like significant association. And they're going to say, oh, shit, that's, that's scary. Or you see a headline. I know we'll talk about this a bit later. Like, green tea causes liver failure. Yes. And you're going to go, whoa. whoa. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting. So, so a, a tangent, but related to the, the the sort of the presentation of of data is so you know I'm not a fan of the like food guidelines, you know, like the you know the food pyramid or whatever you want to call it. It's all it's actually still referred to as the food pyramid. Yeah, that was very eighties, but essentially, <laughs> you know, like um, sure, if you were to follow a follow the guidelines of that, if you were a healthy person, you'd probably actually be fine. You know, you'd probably be a bit low on protein actually, but you know, you wouldn't that wouldn't necessarily cause a lot of the chronic disease issues that we have. In today's society, if we're thinking back into the 1980. Um, but the graph that I do see time and again is that when they put the food guidelines in in 1980 or 1977, there's this, at the exact same time, this immediate in, uh, up, uptick of obesity. And so the graphs, again, they align very nicely with regards to, this is when we saw the, the guidelines be put in place and look at the increase in obesity. But obesity itself takes a while to develop. 
also. So it's same same sort of thing. And I'm not saying this yeah. to defend the food guidelines at all, but it is interesting the way that like I, I'd be interested to sort of have a deeper look into that and go, well, I wonder what happened 10 years earlier. Maybe 10 years earlier we started eating snacks. Uh, I don't know, you know. And that's a really good example because I I would have used those graphs probably 15 or so years ago. Yeah. To sort of say, hey, well, maybe the, the guidelines don't work, right? Yeah. But I would now know that the, the use of those graphs in that way is is at best imprecise. Yeah. And probably spurious. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think the, the food guidelines are necessarily the problem. I don't think they're great for several reasons. But I, I do think that if if people followed them religiously they would probably be okay like they would probably be pretty healthy the problem is that i think the food guidelines are confusing and they distract from the real issues so it's not that the food guidelines are bad or wrong as a lot of people say you know per se i think it's just that they create a lot of unnecessary distraction you know demonization of food and they're kind of missing the point or have maybe maybe they're getting better i think they are getting a lot better but in the past i think they've missed the point on what's most important um, and, and I think we've got bigger issues, you know, nutrition wise, I think one of our biggest issues currently is undernourishment. And I know I, I hammer on about it all the time, but it's just because I see more and more research emerging to support this and more and more case evidence within, you know, our students, within our clients, you know, all sorts, anyone we could basically get food data from, we're seeing fairly consistently that most people, most of the time, are in some cases drastically undernourished. And it's, I think, a bit of a silent epidemic because people can function pretty well in the presence of subclinical deficiencies, but they certainly won't be in optimal health. Um, and it will lead to problems down the line. Well, it's interesting. So I, as you know, I'm running my mentorship and we did a um, a block on basic biomarkers. So um, I just sort of presented on the things that you often get tested when you go to your doctor, if you're just getting like a basic markup, plus some additional extras, which I like to add in, but the doctors don't, you know, the public, the person doesn't always necessarily pay for them. So they don't sort of go through. Uh, but I um, sort of did a big sort of explanation on what all these what what all the sort of biomarkers mean and and what you can sort of glean from them and of course the difference between reference range norms versus optimal sort of functioning and one of the the um, girls in there she's a friend of mine who's doing the course as well which is really cool and she just said she was like you know before we had a conversation about, about my biomarkers I hadn't been to the doctor in years and years and years but she had you know reached a significant age and she's like right I've actually got a look at I really should just sort this stuff out like what you know just make sure that I'm okay so she wasn't particularly feeling bad in her mind went along got her blood tests done and was below optimal in ferritin b12 and vitamin d again didn't feel overly bad yet 12 weeks later after taking supplements she was like I just cannot believe how much better I feel I thought I just had an attitude problem but actually, I actually feel so much better. And these her below optimal numbers were not flagged at the at the 
um, sort of the laboratory test or, or the doctor's office, you know, like if anything, she said it was ridiculous. Her cholesterol was slightly higher than the range at the lab with which she got it done. So that's the only thing that her young doctor flagged her on was her slightly high cholesterol. And, and she is as healthy as anything other than that undernourishment. So I think people normalize a, a, um, a type of, uh, how they feel, like suboptimally, they just normalise that thinking, well, I don't feel as bad as my mate over here who's having XYZ problem. And and you literally just don't know. Yeah, you literally don't. Because you live in your own skin every day, right? Yeah. And it's not until we make changes that we realise, because uh, I, I think I've told you this before, but I haven't done it for many years, but I used to ask a lot of my clients just a, a snapshot question when they came in, like on a scale of one to 10, how do you feel? Yeah. And often they would say something like, oh, I'm about a six, but I want to be higher. Then a month later, you can't, when they come back for their second consultation, you ask them, well, how are you feeling now? It's just a snapshot, like off the top of your head. Like, oh, you know what? I'm probably about a seven, but before I wasn't a six. I didn't realize how crap I was feeling. I was a three bef- before. Yes, interesting. So when they actually think about where they were at previously, we, we just don't know often how, how tired we are, how low we are, you know, how much poor sleep's affecting us, mm-hmm. how much we're being impacted by things we didn't even realize, like those nutrient insufficiencies. Yeah. Um, and the reference range stuff is interesting because I, I've got clients up, I've got clients all around the world and um, some of my clients in Canada, their reference ranges, I'm pretty sure now that they get back from their docs, say um, that sufficiency of vitamin D is over 75 nanomoles. Oh, interesting. Right. And ours is 100. Yeah. And in a lot oh, of the research- you, Oh, no. Oh, sorry. Ours, ours, is, ours, is, ours is 50. Yeah. No, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, ours is 50. Um, what I meant to say is that a lot of people suggest the optimal is over 100. So 100 to 150 or 100 to 200 rather than 50 to 150. Um, and in a lot of the research you read around vitamin D, they might state, you know, 50 as being under 50 as being deficient, but they still use often over 75 as being sufficient. Yeah, interesting. So we've got a bit of a lag there because it's not, I don't think it's anyone's fault. But a lot of practitioners, whether they're doctors or not, will just see the results and just default to the reference ranges, which I think you can do for some things. Yeah. But for others, you need to be a little bit more circumspect and just saying, you know, within range is not always the the best thing. Yeah. And so a couple of things. One is it's interesting that with B12, so our reference range is very wide. And um, and I see a number of people below 200 in B12 and that, and also have significant symptoms. Because that's the thing is that you always want to, you always want to measure up the symptoms that you're experiencing with a biomarker if you can, because, you know, we have these sort of optimal numbers maybe in our head. You and I may, may be similar, maybe different as to where we see our clients might feel best. But ultimately, it's quite, it's an individual thing as well. Um, but, you know, in Japan, I think the cutoff, when you convert the the units, the cutoff in Japan for for insufficient is anything below about 369, which is wow. around, which, and for us, it's one hundred. 70 actually and it's not flagged unless it's or sometimes it's flagged if it's sort of below 200 but I've had seen so many people that have their uh, b12 is it like below 200 and it's not it's not flagged and they have significant brain fog and just real energy problems well here's a cool one for you this just came through probably a few weeks ago because it's part of the living reviews that I'm doing um, one of the elements we're going to add into our folate info is that a recent study has shown a six times greater risk of preterm delivery 
when serum folate levels are less than 28 nanomoles. And when we consider that our reference range is 5 to 45, we're really talking about you, you actually, for optimal outcomes in pregnancy, need to be in the top third of that reference range. So this is where uh, one of the things we're doing at the Institute is starting to slowly, slowly, we're starting to put together functional reference ranges for various sort of condition outcomes and what's indicated in the research, just so that the practitioners can go back to that and very quickly see, well, is this actually uh, an optimal result for my client? Yeah, nice. I've um, leaned quite a bit on Rachel Arthur's work and that the, She's working. She is so good. I'll send you my little resource that I did, if you like, if it's helpful at all. Just you. I mean, you may or may not agree with a lot of what I've got for my sort of what I've had with optimal um, ranges and stuff. Just, just so you, it'll be interesting to get your input. Actually, um, well, you know, not not detailed input because then I'd have to act on it. But at least, <laughs> uh, but at least if you can have a look and go, yeah, nah, I don't really agree with that. Or okay, that's interesting. But that you know. Rachel's stuff is really cool. She's she's. Um, very good practitioner. Uh, she's put out some really cool research. I, I um, bump into Rachel quite a bit at conferences where we're both speaking. And I remember at one conference I was, uh, what was I? Oh, someone asked me about zinc taste testing and I said, look, here's my opinion. But if you want to ask someone about it, Rachel's <laughs> yeah. sitting right there. Yeah, yeah. She's, she'd performed the research that I was quoting, yeah, right? Yeah. So, That's funny. Yeah. Hey, uh, actually on that, Cliff, um, while we're in the realm of you know, myth busting or whatever. Um, people always people still look to things like hair testing, hair, hair testing, mineral analysis as as a marker of nutrient sufficiency. Now you and you, we are talking about an undernourished in the undernourished space. Like, can people rely on that as a marker for insufficient nutrients? Is there any validity in it at all? I mean, there may be some, right, or not at all. I'll start with the validity. Yeah. <laughs> there, hair testing is is very, um, or it can provide some interesting insights for forensic pathology and for toxicology. So basically, if we're looking at someone who's been poisoned or if someone has been exposed to a lot of toxic heavy metals, then yeah, there, there can be validity to it because it will show in the hair. Um, and it can also give interesting temp temporal information. So it can sort of, because of the rate of hair growth, they can see when someone might have been exposed to a poison or whatever. However, if we're talking about validity for clinical practice, it's it's basically useless. The reason being that, we, I'll explain this for the audience because I know you you understand all this stuff, but when we talk about accuracy or validity, what we're basically saying is that it's it's accurate according to our intended result. So for this, we would have to see from hair tests, we would have to see that there is a high degree of accuracy when we compare it to tissue or blood levels of these nutrients, and we don't see that. The next metric for testing is reliability, and reliability is basically that if we have the same sample tested multiple times or even you know at multiple locations using the same analytes and same methods, we should get basically the same results, very, very similar results, and we don't see that either. So what we basically see is inaccuracy of the test itself when we compare it to what's happening in the body, uh, and we see a complete lack of reliability when it's tested at different you know, through different labs at different times, whatever. And this has been studied. People have done studies on this where they've taken the same sample of hair or basically from the same area, same sort of length of hair, all that kind of stuff, sent it off to different labs or sent it to the same lab at different times and they get different results. Um, so yeah, there's not really a lot there. And it's also very 
subject to conditions within the hair. So if the hair is drier, more moist, if someone shampoos regularly or doesn't, someone uses conditioner, someone bleaches their hair, someone colors their hair, that all plays into the results as well. So in a nutshell, hair testing is is nearly useless, except for forensic pathologists. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and alcohol intake too, I think, is is one that which it's used um, clinically. Um, you know. Uh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. Um, it can see what I, I tend to just ask my clients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but how, like, how truthful are they going to be with you? You're like, hey, actually, yeah, give me true. a sample of your hair. Um, interesting with the the lab analysis stuff because I remember when back when uh, measuring a salivary cortisol as a marker of adrenal function was the thing that we did, and I remember that that you would send away, um, like almost everyone you sent away to this, to wherever it was it was, was uh, sent away to, came back with a low salivary cortisol. Like, And then it was sort of came into question, like, actually, is it the lab that's the issue? Like, or is it that everyone has low salivary sort of cortisol? Which, which you know, in the saliva, I believe that you might get 3% of actual um, free cortisol as a, as a, um, or available to be measured, or I don't know how that that works, but I do know that saliva is not the best indicator for. I mean, for cortisol awakening response it, taken at the right time, that's one of the sort of markers for it, but not as a general rule in terms of the overall sort of cortisol function. But yeah, hmm. labs are interesting. Yeah, and I mean a lot of the 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 labs that aren't your your standard, you know, medically certified lab tests you know that kind of stuff the stuff that's not being done through primary health organizations it is very much up to them to determine what the reference ranges are for their particular outcomes and often that's that's one of the challenges because often those reference ranges aren't validated and so you know, for some tests, like I'll throw it out there. I know I'm probably going to get some the Dutch, blowback, but the Dutch test, Dutch test, you're not a fan. Dutch test, are, are, well, the, the, the thing is, they're, they're they're interesting because they're accurate. Yeah. So, in terms of their their translation to what we would otherwise see in blood, or the the accuracy between dried urine versus liquid urine, it's pretty good. So, as far as a test goes, it's sound. But one of the challenges is that the reference ranges to my knowledge, are not validated. They, they come back with. Um, and the bigger issue, as I've written and will publish soon, is that I just don't think it's all that clinically useful. Now, I'm not saying it's never useful, but I don't think it's clinically useful in probably 99% of cases because we will easily see the outcomes in terms of the functional outcomes in a client, or we'll see anomalies with standard blood tests. And we'll also typically see, if we do a thorough case take, the likely causes for that. And I don't believe for a second that a Dutch test can show anything causative because by, by nature, it's a test that shows outcomes of what you're doing changes within the body. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I saw your little piece in HPI and I think I might have commented on it as well. It's like, because I know, because there are like, I've, I've had, I've absolutely used it with, with clients who wanted to know. And I'm like, yeah, cool. We can do a Dutch test. Having said that, my usual stance on anything with testing is, hey, 
I don't know that the test right here and now is going to change what we're going to do, to be honest. So let's do what we do. And then if down the line we're not, you know, maybe you'll glean something. But I do know, though, not to push back, but I know that there are clinicians who use it very regularly because this is what they do and they see great value in it. So I, I certainly, you know, and I think, but I think also what you're, you're not dismissing that, but you're just... Um, you have questions over how useful it is in that clinical setting and how, you know, what it might do, how it might change. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not 100% against it because like I say, it's, it's accurate. And so it can give some interesting insights, but whenever I've had a client who's given me Dutch tests that they've had performed elsewhere, it's kind of like, oh yeah, that, that's cool. Um, but we kind of knew that anyway. Yes. And I'm not being flippant. No, I, no, no, I, I, no, I promise know. I'm not. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the bigger reason is that it's, it's a pretty big cost. And I, I find that for some clients, it can become a real distraction mm. because they become, like I wrote in that little piece, they become very pathologized. So that, that's the reason I wrote about that because I've experienced that where they're like, but I've got low dopamine levels. We need to fix this. And it's like, yeah, but you, you, you really want to fix it with these you know, herbal supplements or these other things you've been prescribed by someone. Let's look at the reasons why we might have some of these expressions and we can see that you're sleeping five hours a night and you're really stressed and there's some other stuff psychosocially that's playing into it. And hey, if we look at the food data we've analyzed, you're insufficient in B1, B2, B6, B12, calcium, vitamin D and yeah. potassium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so all the things. Let's kind of, and, and protein and essential fatty acids. So let's take care <laughs> of those things first and then see where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I always leave the door open to tests like that that have accuracy and reliability um, because that they might provide some really interesting additional information for, uh, you know, for a particular client. Yeah. I think my main point is that the, those ones are overused. Yeah. Um, and other tests like hair testing, I, I just don't think we should be using it all because they're not valid. Or zinc taste testing, same thing. Yeah. You know, notoriously inaccurate. Yes. Um, so yeah, there are certain ones we should just leave at the door, and others we can sort of leave the, as a potential for use where necessary. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's good. Um, with regards, Cliff, to what was I thinking? Oh, I've got a question actually um, that I had with a client this morning. So she's celiac, and she's had she's had really bad responses to things like wheat grass, wheat grass, and something else that's in greens powders um and because I suggested to her because she's just not getting a full spectrum well one she can't have a lot of fiber in her diet because of her gut and she's done a lot of gut work but it work but I just suspect that she's just one of these individuals that if she gets too much of that sort of vegetable bulk that's just really upsetting for her so I don't know that that will ever be something that she goes down she's also vegan which does make it a somewhat of a challenge um with regards to food intake but and I suggested said well you know I'm not as concerned about the fiber if I'm honest with you as I am maybe about the antioxidants and the phytochemicals you might be missing from the vegetables so what about a greens powder what about the good green vitality because you know I'm a massive fan of that one and she said look it's got wheatgrass and I just know that whenever I have something like that I'm going to vomit and it's going to make me really sick because she's celiac now mm. what is your so I mean you are the 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 clean lean guy like what's how much should, I said look I'll ask Cliff because I know that he's not going to try and sell you something that he doesn't believe is going to be useful for you but can people with celiac have something like good green vitality 
Yeah, because any things that are in there, like barley grass, wheat grass, they don't have any gluten in them. Okay. The the you know the the sprouted elements. So the actual plant per se doesn't have the gluten. It's only in the grain, uh, in the seed. So generally that's okay. Um, but obviously, if someone is you know throwing up every time they have a product, then it, it, it could it could be lots of things, and it would be very hard to say. Some people will have you know there will always be strange. Strange with respect to the norm, you know, I'm not saying that people are strange, but there will always be peculiar reactions to certain foods in some people. Like I've never seen a, 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 I've never seen a client who was allergic to meat until I did. And I had a client who was allergic to lamb, verified allergy. And usually that doesn't happen, but it, it can. So people can be allergic to all sorts of stuff. You know, people can be allergic to mushrooms. Mushrooms are an incredibly healthy food, but some people are severely allergic to them. And so we always need to consider that there could be something like that going on. And I would never dismiss someone's, you know, literally visceral reactions to a food or a supplement because it ostensibly should be okay for them. Now, I will just clarify, she hasn't tried it. So so when she says that she's had this vomiting reaction to something like wheatgrass, it's wheatgrass itself. It's not what's been Con- what's gotcha. in GGV, which is why I said, I said, oh, well, you know, I'm sure GGV is fine for celiac people, actually, but I would double check with you. And typically it is. So, I mean, she could probably try it again. And if, if obviously, if she gets any sort of reaction, then she should stop taking yeah. it. Um, but typically for most people, it's, it's completely fine. You know, it, there are, there are weird things that can happen that I don't think we entirely n- know enough about because it just hasn't been researched yeah. enough. And one of those things is like crossover allergies where, and it may not be an allergy per se, it might be a psychoneurophysiological response where if someone has eaten, you know, wheat and had a bad reaction to it, probably because of the gluten, but they they might begin to autonomically associate some of the reaction with other components from that food as well. Oh, totally. And so that, that, and this is potentially why we might be seeing more combined milk protein allergies. Yeah where people who might be sensitive to casein end up exhibiting sensitivity to, to whey. Now, it might just be some sort of allergy response. It might be an immunological thing, or it might be more of a psychoneuroimmunological reaction or just a pure psychoneurophysiological reaction. So there's a lot of weird sort of stuff that goes on there as well, and um, it's it becomes difficult to un- unpick all that. No, I know, and it reminds me of when I was about eight, because everything happened when I was eight in my head. I had like, this one epic year, <laughs> cannot remember the rest of my childhood. But anyway, when I was eight, I uh, wanted to didn't want to go to school on the Friday or Wednesday, and so I pretended to be sick when I got home from school, and I'm really sick, really sick, and I don't really feel like anything to eat, which was rubbish because I was actually starving. And then mum's like, we'll just have this apricot yogurt. And... Um, uh, had the apricot yogurt, had, was that the fresh and fruity and had the big fruit bits in it and I vomited it up because I'd convinced myself that I was sick and I honestly could not eat apricot yogurt for like 20 years, even though I wasn't even actually sick, I was faking it, but that ended up throwing it up because I'd convinced my body. <laughs> so yeah, that's a bit of neuro neuropsychological uh, response right there. Yeah, no, I, I remember seeing research, and I, I hope I don't misrepresent it, but I do remember seeing research years ago in which they were looking at um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Oh, yeah. And um, they, they were giving people sort of food that had gluten in versus placebo, um, telling people it had gluten in, and the a lot of people were responding to the placebo, obviously, as you'd expect, as if it contained gluten. 
Um, conversely, though, people who were told that they weren't having gluten and there was gluten in it often didn't have those reactions. So, you know, there, there's quite a lot going on there. And, the, the you know, we talk about the power of the mind, but that sort of simple, oversimplifies it a little bit because it's not really the mind in the way we usually think about it because then it's it's almost like it's all in your head. Yeah, when it's not because it's, it's a not, physical response. Yeah, and it's not a conscious thing. It's it's below that level of consciousness. And so it is a semi-autonomic reaction. So in that sense, it is psychoneurophysiological. So it's outside of our control. Even if we've patterned it over time through controlled responses, they become reactions rather than responses over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So interesting. Hey, um, and speaking of interesting, you did mention uh, that green tea was going to kill us was that what was that which which if i'm well, honest yeah. i'm actually not a fan of green tea i've never been adult enough to like it unfortunately and and i feel like this is a real failing it's a, actually a personality failing on my part and i'm not quite sure how to, <laughs> how to how to get over it to be fair yeah it's it's an interesting area because it, it's popped up a few times and there was obviously a, a there were a lot of articles published on it probably just even what was it a few weeks back or a few months back um, so it, it had got a lot of headlines, and in a nutshell, what happened is um, some researchers out of Israel performed a, a review. They found, I think, around a hundred case studies of liver failure that apparently resulted from green tea consumption. So th- there is, it's not, it's not a myth because there is an indication in the research, but I think we need to take it in context. Typically, while some of those case studies were related to what might be considered fairly normal intakes of green tea, like, you know, three cups a day kind of thing. Most were either related to really excessive intakes or really high dose green tea extract supplementation. Mm. So we're we're talking about something there where there's a a need for caution. I think when we're talking about supplements, just because something's good, we don't want to take an enormous amount. And would people take the supplement from a fat loss perspective? Because that's a lot of those, um, the E, is it the EG... CG, what what I can't remember um, what that actually said, but that extract is often used in a fat loss context. Yeah, and it, it may not even be that effective for that, right? You know, a lot of the effects. I mean, there are probably some entourage effects, but a lot of the effects of high doses of green tea on fat loss are probably just related to the caffeine, to be honest. Yeah, yeah interesting. But yeah, I mean, green tea is a healthy drink. Um, there are other, you know, antioxidant effects associated with all those various catechins we get from. The green tea. So I think a lot of people are taking it from maybe a fat loss perspective or maybe just a general health perspective. Um, but if we consider that, that we're really talking about, and even the research, as I said, I think said that, you know, for, for almost everyone, just having drinking green tea is not an issue. We're talking about the, the more extreme things. I have also seen that there are particular gene markers that are associated with liver failure and green tea. Um, and even even that though, the researchers said that it's not this is not likely unless you're taking really high doses. So generally drinking green tea is completely safe. It's usually when you're taking really high doses through supplementation. So there's a genetic component, there's the the dosage aspect. And we also need to look at what does it mean in terms of the overall numbers? And if we consider that tea overall is the second most consumed beverage in the world, right? after water. So it's the most consumed additive beverage in the world. 
Um, the, the rates of tea drinking are massive, although green tea is a little bit lower in the Western world and in Asia and other places, it's, it's very high. So we would probably consider that, you know, that there's probably in the region of 2 billion or more tons of green tea drunk every year. So you would expect that if this was a real issue, we'd see a lot more people dropping of dead of liver failure because of it. Yeah. Even I just did some, you know, back of the pamphlet calculations before and they could be completely off, but I was making some estimations because it's actually quite hard to get consumption data or worldwide consumption data on green tea. Mm. There's, there's decent stuff out of the States, but to get it worldwide sort of numbers is quite difficult. But we probably think that there's an under, say, one in five million chance. But that understates it as well, because that's just looking at how many people on average probably around the world drink green tea, right, compared to the amount of cases. But considering the cases have been drawn over a long period of time and people drink green tea over a long period of time, if you include the temporal aspect to it, you're probably talking about a one in several trillion chance. So it's incredibly rare. Okay, so we don't <laughs> need to worry about that right now. Or we don't need all, to worry. Uh, well, the, the other thing is, you know, when we see isolated cases of things like this, we need to consider the things that I mentioned about dose, you know, what people are doing, but also, you know, there are typically other confounding issues and they might be different between the different cases. But, you know, where we have familial history of liver disease, where we have other factors that precipitate liver disease, like obesity, being with metabolic disorder, blah, 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 drug use, you know, hepatotoxic drugs, which are very common and often not corrected for in research. Because if you just take, if you take paracetamol every day, people aren't going to necessarily worry about that. But long-term use of that is, is definitely hepatotoxic in some some ways, you know, and depleting glutathione and things like that. Um, so the other interesting element to something like that is that if we look at the evidence overall, so let's just say we look at big observational data, the association between green tea consumption and health is pretty clear. So overall, it's beneficial for health, you know, tends to be related to reductions in body fat and improvements in insulin sensitivity and cardiovascular disease and all sorts of things, right? Sure, they're probably quite small effects, but overall we would consider based on the, the totality of research, it's a healthy drink. Mm. So unless there's a good reason to not drink it, um, like you've got a familiar his history of something um, or you don't like it, yeah. <laughs> then I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Just don't overdo it. Yeah. You know, don't go crazy with anything. Yeah. Oh, no, that's, uh, that's like uh, good advice to live by. And and actually, one last thing. I know, Cliff, I'm so sorry I, we're over the hour, but I would love to just get your in. We never stick to an hour. Yeah, that's true. I know that's every other person that I interview. I'm like, oh, I just <laughs> want to be mindful of your time. I know I'm not actually that mindful of your time because um, I know you love it as much as I do. Uh, now, cold water immersion in females. So, listening to a podcast and heard the statement that uh, women should not do cold water immersion down to these extremely cold temperatures that men do them to because we can't cope and therefore um, it's dangerous. Oh, I, I don't know that it was that danger was the was what was said, but it was certainly advised against because we're female. Now, I've never seen any 
differentiation in the literature with cold water immersion. Having said that though, Atia just did an AMA on it, so um, I haven't listened to it yet, but maybe he's going to bring up something. But like, is there any anything that you are aware of that might suggest that women cannot tolerate the cold as well as men can? Yeah, there is. I mean, I'm not an expert in the area of cold immersion, but I, I did look into it quite a lot. I have continued to look into it quite a lot, mainly because of the the way that it affects um, ketosis, ketogenesis, yeah. you know, fatty oxidation, stuff like that. So it's been sort of tangential to the the research that I've done. And what I've seen in the literature, and this seems to be fairly consistent, is that going by some measures, because it's not always entirely accurate to make absolutes, but going by a lot of the common measures, the tendency is for women to probably have slightly higher pain thresholds overall, and that can be a bit domain subjective, but lower cold tolerance overall. So that tends to result in some physiological things like earlier shivering um, and a, a little bit more discomfort and things like that. Now, the way I look at it is how meaningful is that? And I don't know the answer, but I, I'm also very, I, I become immediately very resistant when people say that women shouldn't do something um, because they can't handle it, right? I, I find that very, actually very demeaning towards women. And I think that, you know, as you and I have seen with a lot of the research around sex-specific elements of, say, nutritional training, there can be some differences, but they're usually either very small and or there's a massive overlap with, with men. So although we might see some differences, on an individual level, they're not really meaningful. We need to look at the individual themselves. And, you know... I think someone sitting in an ice bath, I don't really see how that could be dangerous or damaging to the person unless they're doing it to the point of hypothermia. And so if that's not the case and someone enjoys it, they experience benefit from it for whatever reason, I just don't think people should listen. I don't think women should, and I'm a guy saying this, so I'm going to get lambasted, but I personally don't think that women should listen to messaging which says you should not do high-intensity interval training. You should not fast. You should not do keto. You should not do cold immersion. Because I know women who do all of those things and thrive. Yeah. I also know women and men for whom some of those things are not appropriate. But we also need to go back to the research and say, well, why would someone say that? And if we look at things like fasting, you know, why shouldn't women fast? Well, there's a very good reason for some women that if it drives their total energy intake down too much, yes, that can be detrimental. But if, if you do a quick scope of the research and the, the messaging that we hear that there's no research on women fasting is wrong. Yeah, it is. Because actually, there's a lot. Yeah, there is. Yeah. And if, if you look at that research, it tends to show, albeit most of it's conducted in women who are with overweight or obesity there are considerable benefits and there don't seem to be a lot of downsides. Well, actually, Cliff, and just on that, and I don't know how this will sound, but if we look, we step back and look at a population, 67% of the population is overweight or obese. 
Exact, and I was I was thinking that exact thing earlier this morning. You know that if we're talking about over two thirds of the particular population being with that condition of excess adiposity, and we see fairly consistently in the research that either fasting or low carb or interventions that help to bring down energy intake are effective, and 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 are safe. That doesn't seem to be an issue for me. But again, we need to stop making absolute statements and focus on the individual because I've also had clients who come to me and they're very committed to the the whole combination, right? They're doing excessive exercise with extreme fasting and they're doing keto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're pulling all levers of of what's required actually and it's excessive. I love it. The levers, right? The levers are what's important because if we're an under-consumer as – those particular clients are, and they're continuing to do to pull those levers that suppress their energy intake even more and increase their energy expenditure, they're, they're gonna be in trouble at some point. Whereas if they tended to be someone who was an overconsumer, um, who didn't do so much exercise, and fasting helped them to auto-regulate their energy intake, there to my mind is gonna be no decrement to that whatsoever. And I'll throw one other thing in there. I think um, some of the research is being misrepresented as well, mm, you know, particularly around the low carb stuff. Yeah, probably in the same way that the caffeine research is is misrepresented to some degree because we're talking about excessive doses of caffeine in that respect are really the only things that that drive issues. I think with um, some of the low carb research, we're extrapolating from studies that aren't actually looking at low carb. You know, like the it was the Luxon Therma study, wasn't it? Was it that one? I don't know. Talk to me about it and I'll pretend to know. I can't remember exactly, but I, I have mentioned it before. It's it's brought up a lot around the conversation of particularly keto slash low carbon women. And it basically, the, the study seems to suggest that with a low carb intake, there is a, a big effect on... Um, Lutinizing hormone pulsatility. Lutinizing hormone pulsatility, exactly. Um, but the study wasn't looking at a low carb diet. Was it low carb? There was low, there was low carbohydrate availability uh. because yeah, it was an extreme calorie restriction, and they were also taking into account with the carbohydrate availability measure how much they were estimated to expend in terms of carbohydrate during their exercise. And so, if you actually look at what they were consuming, it was liquid feedings that were, I think, from memory, around sixty odd percent carbohydrate. So proportionately, actually, a high-carb diet. Yes, but just uh, overall, very low calorie. Exactly. And so when we see, and this is, it, it makes complete sense, when we see extreme energy restriction, yes, there are hormonal ramifications. And we need to then look at, well, what does an energy restriction actually mean? Because why don't we see with fairly extreme calorie restriction, some of the same negative effects in women who are with overweight or obesity? Well, it's simply because there's more available energy. So they're not necessarily in, you know, when we look at calorie deficit, it's an interesting way to look at it. It is, right? Because we're thinking about the calories that they're taking in, not the available calories for energy. Exactly. And the closer we get to our low body fat set points, which are obviously integral to survival, the less available reserve we have that we're prepared to free up. And so that then compounds the effect of... Um, calorie restriction. I think that's why in some instances, absolutely, we see negative effects in women who are very lean 
from some of these interventions. But again, it comes down to pulling those levers. You pull the levers of energy downregulation if you need to. And if you don't, you don't pull them. You know, so you might add another meal back in if you tend to be an under-consumer rather than fasting. Or you increase your carbohydrate because typically that's not going to be quite so satiating. So it might drive a little bit of extra energy intake. Great. that That's cool, right? But it's all about the individual and it's not about making absolute statements or treating women as, you know, glass objects that we need to put on a shelf and that can't that can't be resilient. Yeah. 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 Whereas we're anti-fragile. That's what we want to be. And interesting, interesting actually. <laughs> well, I hope so. Yeah. Um, and on that, um, I, I was actually looking at some research for the, the, the female-specific nutrition in my course, and I remember seeing um, studies looking at that um, luteinizing hormone sort of um, pulsing, and despite that there was a, with a complete drop of energy, actually, there was a diminishing LH um, sort of pulse, yet overall it didn't actually change estrogen. Uh, the amount of estrogen that was, in fact, released. Uh, so, and I found that interesting. And it, pro- it's a, it, it was probably a time course thing. Probably, you know, it was a short. I believe it was a short term sort of study. But it's. But I. Um, I think it's. I think you're right. I think it's so often there's this re- over reliance on studies that have been misrepresented to then push a narrative which isn't then. Um, which isn't actually the truth for everyone. So it's it always comes back to the individual, to the available biofeedback, but also with people who are experiencing issues with low carb, low energy availability, um, and things like that. They actually have to also acknowledge it themselves because this is where I see clinically is the issue when you've got very lean women who are very set on extended prolonged fasting a lot of training and actually really struggle to eat more like they're not they I think those women need to and not it's not just a woman thing but I see it more often a woman for sure um you have to acknowledge some of that um other biofeedback that's available like what your sleep's doing like what your energy's actually like what your cravings are like like you might have a mind of steel and be able to overcome those cravings but it's not really doing you any favors no and you know most of the clients that come to me where that becomes apparent they actually come to me for IBS oh yes of course and yeah because as you know when you you know extreme energy restriction that um you know red s type situation there's a lot of gastrointestinal effects from that. And so often they come to me thinking that, you know, they've got everything more or less on track, but they've got these IBS symptoms. And then we look at it, you know, under consuming, usually because of fasting keto, they're often undernourished because of that as well, because the less food you eat, the less likely you're going to get micros, blah, blah, blah. So it basically compounds um, from there. I'll throw one other element in there as well, Mick, because I think it's important, is that... We need to be aware of the temporal gap in research. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that if we want to look at long-term outcomes, we're pretty much limited to observational evidence, which I still think is very important. I know a lot of people harp on about how poor it is, but it still gives us a good overview of likely effects. Because as you were saying, like if green tea was really dangerous, we would see the effects very clearly like we do for smoking from observational data, right? But we don't see that. But on the other hand, the stronger evidence being randomized controlled trials are always going to be a little bit limited in in terms of adaptation. 
and I, I think that that can be overstated by certain people as well as we know where they just say like if a negative effect for example is shown for a keto diet they'll say oh it just wasn't long enough which could be the case you know the the sort of designed to fail trials where you get someone doing a keto diet for three days and then give them a performance test of course that's not likely to be a good result yeah but um it, it is still valid because as we know from the fasting research for example people often talk about well the catecholamine release is going to be a lot higher so you go on, you start fasting, you know, you've got excessive cortisol response, all that kind of stuff. You know how long that lasts? Two to three weeks? Yes. With, with adaptation? Yes. Catecholamine release, our cortisol responses, epinephrine, norepinephrine, those types of things, they adjust. And so we typically don't have higher stress hormones if we're used to fasting. Yeah. Yeah, because it's no longer a stress. We've adapted to it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's such a good point. <laughs> yeah. Ah. So I think the take-homes from today are be wary of absolutist statements and anything published by Gary Hulse and Albert Reese be very (laughs) wary of because they are um, deeply embedded within anti-cannabis movements that are rooted in in arch conservatism. Yeah, and uh, (laughs) and also um, be your own best investigator and be honest with yourself about how something's affecting you because – that's going to give you way more information than a supposed guru giving you their absolute advice on any such matters. Us us included. Like I hope that we don't make absolute statements because I think we're trying to be a bit more objective about the research, but there will be things that we say that we believe and someone might say, you know what, that doesn't meet my sniff test. And so I'm going to look a little bit deeper um, and you know, I, I love it when I say something that's wrong and people contact me and say, dude, you got this wrong because that's a chance to learn. Yeah, actually, um, I hate it when people tell me I'm wrong. So never do that to me. So everyone just contact, <laughs> don't contact tell me. me I might cry. No, I'm just kidding. No, I look, I completely agree. And I, um, thing is I do, it is actually interesting though, because I love following the line of research when someone sees something absolutist. Cause I'm like, Oh, is that real? Is that true? Cause I, because it's not because I want to prove them wrong. I actually want to find out more about it and how I might apply it to me. And then I just start getting a little bit disappointed that the research isn't there to support what I hear. And I'm like, oh, okay. So uh, they weren't right about that. Yeah. Well, they might be. If there's no research, you just don't know. (laughs) That's true. And to be fair, the only guru that I look up to is you, Cliff. So you better be right because otherwise everything that I've built my uh, knowledge around is completely wrong. So there's that. Well, that's very kind of you, Mick, but I, I don't really like the guru status. No, I know. I only did that to make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Cliff, um, let's just finish up. I just got a couple of quick questions for you. Mm-hmm. One is, could good green vitality be a good supplement for someone with gastric bypass? Absolutely. I thought so too. I did. The, I actually looked at GGV and I looked at something like my tums, which is all the rage right now in my gastric bypass clients, and uh, they're designed specifically for gastric bypass uh, sort of uh, patients. And I'm like, ah, oh, GGV is way better actually. So that's good. I'm glad my you understanding agree. is that there are some some um, gastric surgeons who prescribe it to their clients post surgery. Oh, excellent. That's good. Well, I'm glad about that. Um, two, are you still doing your usual supplement routine? Has anything changed in your uh, diet, in your supplements? Because then that might have to make me update what I'm doing. So let me think about what I'm doing at the moment. 
No, nothing much has changed. I generally get most of my supplements in. No, I have a you know big protein shake as per usual in the morning, and that's by big. I mean it's got about eighty grams of protein. Um, I chuck into that tropical fruit, berries, um, some MCT, NAC. I have some nicotinamide riboside, creatine, and that's basically it. And then in the afternoon, I have um, good green vitality with collagen and pea protein. No, no, what's in your... And fish oil. Okay, so do you have a mixture of whey and pea in the morning? I have whey in the morning just purely because I... I pea protein's thicker. Yes. And so after training, I like a thinner drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I really like to load in the protein and not have it be too thick. So I have whey protein in the morning. And then for all my other shakes, I use pea protein. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, and are you still on the MitoQ? No, I'm not taking MitoQ at the moment. I've had a bit of a break from that. I, to be honest, I don't notice that much from it. Yeah. Um, I know that Paul was mentioning a little while back that they sort of just had some anecdotal evidence that people really notice higher doses. So I think I might have to go back and maybe up the dose a little bit. Well, it's an expensive one to do that with though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's my problem with that. But yeah, no, I hear you. Okay. And uh I, I kind of figure that I have two supplement I have two real food meals a day and two shakes. Yeah. So my shakes, I kind of think, well, you amortize the cost across them. It's probably still cheaper than buying a lunch out or something. So I'm not too fast. Oh, that's good. I um, I like a, I like with the pea protein because it is thick. I like adding water and making it into a pudding, and then just having it. Ah, uh, it's yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it's good for that because it is so thick. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, yeah. Okay, that's good. And um, my final question is: is that we're coming up on time with uh, baby being due, aren't we? A couple, are, of, yeah. a couple of months still, but getting close. A couple so. of months away, so we're just getting things sorted out and drifting into a bit of a routine for that. I'll have to organise um, some time off work. Yes, awesome. Uh, and maybe have, have to have someone take over doing the living reviews for a month or so. That sounds great, Cliff. So. But they're so cool, Mickey. I'm so amped up about the living reviews. I'm excited to know more about this, actually, because I think I must have missed the fact that I was, in fact, reading a living review when I was reading something. Oh, well, they're only just going live now. Okay. So everything previously were, you know, periodical sort of reviews of various things, but now they're, they're, they're live and they're living reviews. So as the research comes in, we update our position stands or whatever. Um, so I'll send you through a couple of the ones that we've done already because we're just going through more or less alphabetically. So I'm, I'm performing living reviews on everything all the time, but we're publishing them um, because some of them we need to backfill a little bit of the background information. Yeah. So we're pretty much publishing one a day though now. Well, that's amazing, Cliff. That's so great. And that sounds to me a little bit like examine then. It, it is. Um, and obviously, and you know that, you know, Soul's a good mate of mine and I think the team there are fantastic they they do a really good job but they're probably a little bit more focused on performance at this stage yes. whereas we're more clinical yeah um and i don't know if they're doing they're doing regular updates but i don't know if they're doing living reviews per se yeah yeah i don't think they ours, are but it's, you know yeah. as soon as the research comes in it goes straight into the document and the document is is live on in our member section anyway oh it's amazing so as soon as it's updated bang it's done yeah cool and I think it's a bit more specific because, you know, we're going into the nuances of, you know, everything that you can think of, vitamin D for 
I'm just using vitamin D as an example because there's so much literature on it, but vitamin D for metabolic disorders, for cancer, for cardiovascular disease, for various autoimmune conditions. I mean, it just goes on and on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just, it grows just constantly. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I'll be... It's a good, it's going to be a good resource. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm super excited, Cliff. Well, um, then finally, can you just remind people where they can find you? Uh, yeah, they can find us at holisticperformance.institute. Easy as that. Yeah, it is that easy. Awesome, Cliff. Always great to chat to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Mixter. Alrighty, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation. I just love chatting to Cliff. He is a wealth of information. He's always so fun to have on the show. And he just gives you some real solid advice. And sometimes that is hard to come across when you're out there on the interweb. All right, team, next week on the podcast, I have the pleasure of talking to Simon Cochran, who is an absolute legend in this endurance space, and it is not about his racing. So I know Simon's been on a number of podcasts now that sort of do the blow-by-blow account of the Ultraman Australia, uh, but we talk about a whole range of things actually, and very little of it is about the racing, so I think you're going to love that episode. Until next week, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can book a call with me or sign up to one of my meal plans. All right, team, you have the best week. Talk soon.